If it hadn't been for music, the civil rights movement would have been like a bird without wings. Music, it brought us together. I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, the so-called classical music podcast that is bold, brave, courageous, and finding a way to get in the way. A quote there from the late John Lewis, who I'm going to talk a a little bit about here um, in a bit. Rest in peace to John Lewis. Warm thoughts to his family um, and his friends. I mean, Scott, we could could go on for a long time. He was one of those guys that I just didn't think was going to die. Yeah. You know, he was uh, fighting through cancer, still going to the office every day. Hats off to that ethic. Yeah. I mean, the last of the um, big six. Yeah. I understand so, so much history there, but I'll I'll, uh, I'll be talking about uh, the late John Lewis here in a bit. Um, uh, other announcements. I want to um, let everyone know that uh, there is now a Spotify playlist that you can go um, follow um, with all of the music that we talk about here on Triloquy. I've gotten all of the season two things up, um, but I'll uh, I'll be going back down through season one and still looking for somebody to take uh, take over all of the social. Yeah, media stuff. If you're interested, um, (laughs) let me know. We can talk. Um, As far as listener shout outs for the week, I would like to shout out Tim. Um, He sent us um, a very, very, very lengthy email concerning our opus on Louis Farrakhan. Uh, We're working out a way for for us to get some of his thoughts uh, on the podcast. So a shout out to him. That's that's coming down the pipeline. I thought it was great. That's the sort of interaction we want. That's yeah. You, you want people challenging you and at the same time saying, this is great. Sure, so. sure. Uh, Scott, we were on, um, a, a, we were guests on a podcast this week. You want to talk about that? Yeah, I want to give a shout out to Tommy and Steve from Speaker Geekers. Um, for a minute, I thought I might have been out of place, but, you know, they made me feel welcome. You know, it's a, uh, it, it, was, it could be a difficult situation for a white person to <laughs> enter into a conversation that involves hip hop. Well, you know, as this airs, um, our guest spot um, has been published, I understand, uh, based on what they said. So uh, make sure to go listen and subscribe to uh, the Speaker Geeker podcast. It was great to, you know, sort of, uh, you know, shed some light on uh, the black side of, you know, so-called classical music, as I've been saying. You know, I, I think sometimes, Scott, uh, we take for granted those those two names, Florence Price and William Grant still, but there are so many others uh, that have not yet even heard of them, you know, so mm-hmm. it was great to, um, to, to share um, those names among others uh, with, with uh, Steve and Tommy and also to, you know, kind of get into the hip hop bag. Sometimes I'm nervous about, you know, being out of my own depth when it comes to hip hop, you know, I'm an appreciator, but not a scholar or a studier of it, but well, I'm way we, out. We, 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 we hung on. I, I thought it was a, a really fun time. Well, we do similar things, you know, the with their podcast and ours. In particular, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to their episode six, because that one, that could almost have been a triloquy epi- oh, really? ep- uh, episode for them, because they were going about separating the artist from artistry. They, you know, they de- mm. de- dove into cancel culture a little bit there. So 
Definitely check out Speaker Geekers. Yeah. And then um, before we um, get into the first movement here, I just want to um, thank all the listeners. Thank the new listeners. Thank the uh, returning listeners. Um, give us a, um, a rating on wherever you're uh, listening to this. Uh, we really appreciate it. Spread the word. Uh, every week I'm hearing from uh, more and more people who are uh, beginning to listen and to subscribe to the Triloquy podcast. So, um, yeah, just thank you. I, I really appreciate it. We put a lot of work into this, our own free time but um yeah it's an honor to share this i'm really humbled by all of the feedback i get so um a huge thanks to each and every one of you listening all right well let's go ahead uh scott and check our accidentals Okay, so first and foremost, I'm going to put a natural next to everything I said about Kanye last time. <laughs> so just ignore me. Do, do not listen to me. <laughs> well, I mean, and, and a part of me still thinks it's fun to have the conversation of what would a Kanye presidency look like. But um, that that last press conference that I saw and him go, and him going off on Harriet Tubman, did you did you see that? Yeah, well, no, I saw the clips. Yeah. You know, all the high points. So. Go ahead. I mean, I, I'm I'm not here to, to do a breakdown. I'm just here to quickly say Kanye is still one of the rap gods, one of the music gods. He will not be the god of America <laughs> by any means. <laughs> it's um, it's funny that you should bring him up because um, Classic FM has a new quiz out. Okay. ClassicFM.com. Okay, our favorite. Yeah, who said it? A composer or a Kanye? What? <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah, I got six out of ten. You, okay, so let's hear some of them. Okay, here we go. All right, so I'm, I'm not going to sit here and take the whole quiz, but let's just, let, let's just do a little bit. All right, here's one. I am flawed as a human. I am flawed as a person. As a man, I am flawed, but my music is perfect. <laughs> that could be anybody. I would say, I mean, if that were a composer, it would have to be somebody very, who, who, was, who are some of our more pompous European composers? I mean, that sounds like something an Englishman would say. Well, isn't it Rachmaninoff's picture that they have there next to Kanye for all oh, it, this? Yeah, it sure is. It sure is. I don't know if it was Rachmaninoff or not, but I'm going to go ahead and guess Kanye. That's, they, that's how they trick you, is that the picture of the composer doesn't necessarily match up with who said the quote. Well, I was I was correct. So that was that was one. I'm just going to do one more just for fun and we'll move on here. I have nothing to say and I am saying it. And that is poetry. <laughs> well, first and foremost, <laughs> uh, another rap guy, Drake, once um, one of his lyrics is a wise man once said nothing at all. Mm. You know, so that that's the thing. I'm gonna go ahead and give this to a composer, though. It was. That's a quote from American avant-garde 433 composer John Cage. Yeah. Well, if you want to go um, take that quiz for yourself, I guess we'll uh, we'll have a link to that um, in the description to this. Um, how'd you come across that, Scott? <laughs> you know, I'm I always guess Kanye's looking. Kanye's making Kanye's making the rounds these days. I'm always looking, and you know, uh, Classic FM is uh, in London, right? Isn't that somewhere? Yeah, I believe uh, over so. in England. So everybody's trying to get on this train. Yeah. And then uh, I guess, I, do, do we need to revisit any Kanye music? I mean, he's, he's gotten a lot of play here on Triloquy. So shout out to Kanye. Um, again, you're not going to be our president, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> but um, yeah, you, you, still lots of beautiful, beautiful, beautiful music. All right. So um, one of the things that um, I wanted to talk about. So there was an article that uh, has been making the rounds. I'm going to put a, I think I'm going to put a flat next to this uh, concerning uh, 
uh, the audition curtain. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we, we kind of explored this in depth back in season one with Sam Bergman, you know, with the audition process and being behind the curtain. But yeah. basically, if you don't know, um, once upon a time, um, I, I believe it was 1969. Uh, forgive me if I don't have the year correct, but uh, two people sued the New York Philharmonic um, for discrimination, saying, you know, you're not hiring um, uh, black people and, and it comes down to how you select these folks. So, you know, here comes, you know, lots of discussion and, and, and you know, fast forward and orchestras have uh, curtains up for auditions so that you cannot see who is behind the curtain. Now, this is kind of um, amoebus across the field because some orchestras keep the curtain up the entire time. So mm -hmm. preliminary rounds. Um, second rounds and, and all that all the way up to the finals now a lot of these orchestras including um the last orchestra i want a job with um that curtain comes down in the finals and the justification is ensemble playing playing sure. with other members of sure. the um, orchestra and um so this this article came out with the title to make orchestras more diverse end blind auditions. So um, one of the things, and this is by Anthony Tomasini, I'll, I'll also put a link to this um, in the description. But um, basically, uh, Scott, what the author is saying is, uh, we have seen um, gender diversity uh, move in the right direction right. Uh, since these curtains, but um, not so much when it comes to racial diversity. And uh, he, he talks about how, you know, there are flaws in the education, you know, with the um, the pipeline with, with the you're right. The so-called pipeline with so many of these um, uh, organizations built to um, teach uh, kids, you know, how to win these auditions, how to get successful in them. We have to ask the question, who has access? access to those classes and, right. and to those resources. But, you know, a lot of people are really, really married to um, the idea of this curtain. And I know, you know, you've talked all the time about how uh, you can't really speak to that on the theater side of things because the no. visual is, is so it. important. But I mean, what do you think about that um, in, in other parts of the professional world? So uh, and, and when we were uh, talking earlier, I kind of brought up the um, analogy of a radio station needing a male uh, voice. So um, so let's say I, I don't know. They there are all these different voices and. Um, the visual, you know, how you look doesn't matter, you know, on, on radio all that much, but um, because they want X, fill in the blank, you know, for this male voice, um, they're not going off of what they hear alone, but mm -hmm. off of what they see. I mean, what, what would be your reaction to that on maybe the radio front or the podcast front? If they need a male voice and I can do it, why wouldn't I do it? But let's say they need a male voice and you feel like it should be um, it should be blind. It shouldn't matter what anyone looks like. You know, maybe, you know, um, they want someone who looks, you know, like they're going to be around for a long time. Someone who looks younger or You're calling or someone, me old. I'm not calling you You're old. You're calling just, me old. No, no, no. I'm just asking. I'm, I'm just oh, okay. trying to I'm just trying to paint the picture of, you know, and why in some cases some people will have an issue um even in light of the discussion being around diversity with that curtain coming up. I mean, if you were going for a job and in addition to sending um, voice samples, you needed to send a few headshots, would you, I mean, what, what, would you not have any questions about that? Oh man, 
I don't know. I don't know if they're going to want me then. <laughs> well, I mean, and maybe a lot of people feel that way. You know, yeah. that's that's what I'm kind of hitting on. A lot of people uh, still don't feel comfortable um, with that curtain coming up. And our uh, guest today for the third movement out of Deji, um, he talks a little bit about that. But um, a story I tell all the time, Scott, is how the curtain, you know, again, the curtain came up when I took my audition with the Knoxville Symphony. And that kind of gave me the confidence that pushed me over, you mm. know, just showing these folks, yeah, I'm here, this is me, and, and and let's do it. But a lot of people just don't, you know, feel very comfortable. Okay, so let, let me clear. You said when the curtain came up, you felt... And, and sorry, like, and, and I and I get mixed up. So sometimes I think about the curtain like that's attached to the theater. Okay, so got coming you. down okay. and coming up. But, okay. so, but sometimes people talk about putting the curtain up and taking the curtain down. So I guess I should speak more clearly there. So you were just fine being watched. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I was fine. Yeah. But, but you know, as, as uh, you know, we've seen, you know, when you have folks on these panels in these positions of power, that just makes way for, you know, whatever excuse being made because you don't want that person in, in the orchestra based on whatever. How do you feel about the point that was being made that this might um, be detrimental to the male-female ratio? That, mm. that, they, that they would lose ground in that they could see, oh, you're such and such a student. Right. Uh, you know, let's plug you in there. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's that as well. Um, that, that, that's something that the, the curtain protects you from. But again, as, as this author has laid out, the curtain has not done much for um, racial diversity. Right. So, so what, like what we were talking about beforehand, it gets down to essentially affirmative action where you've got three great players. One of them's black. You hire the black one. I don't see anything wrong with that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I'm saying, <laughs> is, that what we're, is that what we're talking? Yeah. And, and I think what the meat of that conversation is for me is um, – black people not being afraid to, you know, really affirm ourselves unapologetically. So, um, and, uh, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I respect all of the, all of, all of the differing opinions across the field. My opinion is if an orchestra wants to hire black musicians, hire black musicians. It, it seems that easy to me. Mm -hmm. And, um, the, the assumption, the idea that quality would go down comes with the assumption that black people just don't do it as well, which we all know is not true. So, you know, what's wrong with just hiring someone black? If you, if you were in a, in a position of power in an orchestra, you know, maybe at the radio station we work at and there was an opening, you know, right now, um, it's been announced that uh, APM is looking for a music director mm -hmm. if it were if it was up to you would you feel comfortable specifically um, and openly looking for a black person or a person of color or a woman or whatever you were specifically looking for personally I would yeah yeah did I misunderstand your question personally I mean, you would I wouldn't have a problem hiring a person of color or a woman but specifically so and and that being oh, the reason oh no I'm don't they do that now? On the other side of it, I believe, yeah. They, they, they will hire the white person. <laughs> All right. All right. Um, but, you know, this is uh, – you bring up an interesting point from that other article that came across from the New York Times, Black Artists on How to Change Classical Music. Mm -hmm. You thought that I'm that sorry. was kind of a – you thought that was kind of a softball – uh, article, but – Well, first of all, you put me, you put me on blast here. <laughs> but one of the things that – uh, Maestro Wilkins talked about was yeah, shout out to him. They 
in Philadelphia when he was working on a project with the Philadelphia Orchestra. They hired a person from the community. Yeah. And he pointed out that there was no comparison between that artist's voice and somebody who was a pro. Mm-hmm. It was clear. But the electricity that it created that that person was from that community and they were making music together was far more valuable. Yeah, this kind of hits on a conversation that I I can't remember if we did it on the podcast or not, but the idea of uh, perfection being reinforced through the way we record music Mm. and then, Mm -hmm. you know, that sound being in our ear when it comes to performances, when again, as you just said, it proves that um, it's not really all that important if you're engaging an audience in a more authentic way. You know, as as Maestro Wilkins laid out there, uh, getting someone from the community. Um, you, shout out to him because he's yep. uh, and music director of the Omaha Symphony. Yep. Hey, what what? Yep. Shout out to Nebraska. Um, but you know, but before you try to you know say that I call this whole thing softball, I think there are some softball responses in here. I will be honest, but I'm I'm gonna go with uh, right up here at the top. You know, they so so folks for folks who don't know, we'll also put this in the description. Um, there are excerpts from nine different interviews by black uh, classical musicians that they kind of you know excerpted and um, and and put together to kind of have this digital conversation about um, you know changing things in classical music from the black perspective uh, the first one here is Monica Ellis you know bassoonist with Imani wins mm-hmm. I got to meet her um, last summer huge shout out to her I've been a fan of her music for you know over two decades now um, the, the first thing that she says here and the uh, first thing in this article, uh, it says the first step is admitting that these organizations are built on a white framework built to benefit white people. So right. I think a lot of people will understand the built on a white framework. Fine. But it was built first to with, with someone in mind. Right. And that's the part that we we are still missing. And. Um, interrogating yeah and 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 how are we going to get past that spot i mean how are we going to convince scott how are we going to fix uh convince your brethren and your sister and to understand that these structures were built for you specifically that they, they were not built for our success they were built for your success you know well what what, what, what what do you think is the line to help people just understand that part of it that's a great question i don't have an answer for you mm. um I, i'll think on it yeah um, you gonna hold me to it? I am gonna hold you to it. I am gonna, you know, <laughs> right. we're doing the work here. Uh, some of the other folks outlined in this article: Jesse Montgomery, was Jesse in there? Montgomery. Yeah, shout out to her, um, Roderick Cox. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> Anthony McGill, who's actually gonna be on uh, Triloquy uh, here in a few weeks. So a huge shout out to him. Principal clarinet of the uh, New York Philharmonic, Lawrence Brownlee, phenomenal singer. He has some uh, his parts of Carmina Burana uh, that that he can do. Those countertenor lines are so beautiful. He has some interesting things to say. Um, um, I'm, I'm not gonna backpedal. I think there are some softball um, responses here, but you know the conversation is happening. So. That, that that's more than we can we could have said six seven eight months ago right yeah mm. that's true all right well um how about we take uh we have a few accidentals here so you know i, I mentioned monica ellis how about we um take a little time to listen to a bit of uh you know what she contributes to amani wins and we'll continue our accidentals here Thank you. 
All right, so um, part two of Movement One. Did you have any um, accidentals left? Because I-, I wanted to talk a little bit um, about John Lewis to um, transition us, but if you have another uh, accidental. Yeah, one is on my own. I'm going to put myself on blast here because listening back to last week's opus, there was a part where I talked about yeah, more men. natural for yourself. Like men voting to give women the right to vote. Right. And at first blush, it sounds like, you know, men were doing this magnanimous thing and uh, wasn't acknowledging the work that had been done by all the women leading up to that. I didn't mean to do that. And seeing as how I have gotten into the habit of calling out certain critics and reviewers and things about saying your headline and your lead out loud before you press end, I thought what's good for the goose is good for me too. So I'm not, I'm, 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 I didn't mean to do that and I'm going to do better in the future. I'll take that with me. And I also wanted to um, give a shout out to Marga Richter. Do you know yeah. Marga Richter? Composer yeah. and champion of women in classical music. She died at 93 years old. You guys go listen to her concerto for piano, violas, cellos, and basses from 1955. Um, 93 years old, not COVID related. Wow. Wow. So, is, is that music available now? Yeah, go and look at it on YouTube. I'll, and I'll give you the link that you can include. Okay, well, uh, we'll, maybe, we'll, we'll use some of that to uh, transition into movement too. But as we're transitioning into movement too, I just wanted to, you know, uh, once again, acknowledge, um, you know, the late John Lewis. He, um, you know, thinking about him and thinking about how I could address um, his life and his work through music is something that I spent, um, you know, my early Saturday morning doing last time mm-hmm. um, I was uh, on the airwaves. So there's some music that I'm going to uh, talk about uh, in this um, in this next movement um, that I tie with uh, John Lewis. But, you know, we opened up uh, this opus of Triloquy uh, with a quote of his talking about how uh, music was integral to the to the civil rights movement. You know, when we think about um, Nina Simone, the Mississippi Goddamn and 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 the music um, that since grew from that, you know, when, when we think about John Lewis, we think about that bridge in Selma. And then, of course, uh, the, the the song Glory, which featured uh, John Legend. And, you know, so I, I really, you know, appreciate how so many of these great leaders, John Lewis included, um, kept an ear on the music and understood how important and how integral it is to all of these conversations. So, you know, there, there's really... I, 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 I get choked up thinking about it almost because it validates um, what we're doing and it validates, you know, black people's space in, in, this, in this world of music. Think about some of the music that was sung on those marches. What, exactly. what would it be like to be in the midst of all those voices and, and what experience that, that? And what that music did, the in, how it energized them, how it empowered them, how it, you know, if, if it was a time of mourning, how it, it was that sense of comfort. And, you know, again, John Lewis recognizing that and being a proponent of that is so powerful and it's something that we, we can't overlook. You talk about um, watching all of these um, monumental personality sort of people passing away. And I'm looking around wondering who's stepping up to take the mantle, you know? It's, it's funny that you say that. Um, I, I want to uh, shout out Joel and Jasmine, a couple uh, of our friends here in the uh, Twin Cities. We did a little uh, physically distanced picnic, and that was a big part of our conversation. Who is our next leader? You know, who, yeah. who on a national level 
are we going to look to, you know, for that leadership? And um, Jasmine actually suggested Dave Chappelle <laughs> because he speaks sort of unapologetically. But but think about it, you know, these and and not to loop Kanye back in, but, you know, it, it could be someone who, you know, might not be suited for the presidency or or the nuclear codes, but someone who really does um, have a dedication to racial equity, black equity, um, a united working class, as we explored last week with uh, Paul Robeson. So, yeah. you know, I, I guess that's the next big question. Who's going to who's going to be our leader? If you have any suggestions, please send them, send, along. <laughs> send them our way. I, I would love to think about it and, and have as much help as I can forming um forming all of that. All right, so uh, let's go ahead and um, transition into uh, our second movement, Strike a Chord. Um, and, and as promised, we'll listen to a bit of that um, music by the uh, late Miss Richter. And here we are in movement two, um, strike a chord. I'm going to go ahead and um, get us started in this movement with uh, my treatment of, um, you know, the news about John Lewis. So, of course, um, I heard on uh, late Friday night, this past Friday night, um, as I was getting ready to go in and um, when I did my trade off, you, you know, you're on vacation. So your um, your uh, substitute, shout out to Melissa Owsley, uh, she peeked her head in and, and asked me if I had heard and, you know, she seemed pretty upset. And, you know, I just knew that there was something I had to do with that bit of information for the next six hours. Um, it, it speaks to the re- responsibility of live radio, uh, no, no matter, you know, what sort of air, what, what, what corner of it you're in. That's so, a good point. Um, so um, there were a few pieces that I tied in um, with that news. So on my playlist was a work by Witten Marsalis called America, My Home. And um, I thought it's, it's a piece for piano and cello. And um you know, when I think about that phrase, America, my home, and when I think about um, how that relates to the passing of John Lewis, you know, there was work that he needed to do in his home. You know, he, he wasn't just um, an agitator for agitating sake. Um, America is his home as much as anyone else's was his home as much as anyone else's. And he put in the extra work, the lifelong work of of making it just that his home. And and I thought it was a, a, a really, you know, poignant moment for me. And I hope that it was a poignant moment for the listeners to, you know, think about that concept as they listen to this very American piece of music um, by another uh, black man who, who has spoken out on um, racial equity. Uh, uh, Whitten Marcellus's um, America, My Home. Now, of course, beyond that, um, later on uh, in the morning, as I knew folks were, you know, beginning to wake up and maybe they turn on their classical radio first um, before they check out any news or anything. So just so that I'm there and, and letting them know um, in my last hour on the air, of course, I put on um, one of those, uh, you know, Negro spirituals that I'm sure folks will be returning to when we talk about memorial services uh, for John Lewis, especially when it comes to, you know, his work in the civil rights movement, how, you know, that Negro 
or spiritual really played a role, you know, then as much as it did uh, way back when. So um, there was a bit of that. And then um, I, I, I decided to put on uh, Florence Price's Piano Concerto in One Movement. Um, you know, in that piece, you can hear the um, you can hear the struggle. You can hear the hardship um, that that Florence must have been going through. That John Lewis uh, lived through. You can hear the um, romance of, of of blackness. You know, just the celebration of of those uh, what I always imagine as those late nights in 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 the South under a star filled night with your significant other or I guess your spouse if they're there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and uh, and then you know also what uh, always what Florence. Price, you get those, you know, really fun uh, Juba dance um, inspired uh, movements that, uh, uh, that that really speak to, you know, what is celebratory about being black. It's not only about the struggle, but about the celebration. Um, I got a lot of feedback uh, from the way I handled that. And, and even since I've been uh, listening to that um, concerto more and more, um, you know, and on a personal note, um, that piece of music, uh, Florence Price's uh, One Movement Piano Concerto, was on the last uh, concert I gave down in Knoxville, you know, mm. before I put the bassoon back in its case in, in, a, in a professional capacity. I spent some time with uh, that piece of music, and I've been spending even more time with it lately. So um, I would really um, encourage everyone to go uh, take a listen um, to that. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll link a, a, a really great recording of it, put it on the uh, Spotify uh, Triloquy Tracks uh, playlist, Florence Price's uh, Piano Concerto in One Movement. To think that everything that he did was coming from this Gandhi-esque, nonviolent mm-hmm. approach, which I admire because I'm a pretty peaceful guy, but if you push me to the right spot, then I might get violent. Yeah. And I cannot imagine what it would be like to be sitting at a lunch counter and have, let alone the name calling, but condiments poured on you and cigarettes put out on your skin and he did it all without ever lashing out or returning that violence and that wasn't the end of the um you know the backlash after they're you know sprayed with everything stuff poured on them they go to jail right Right. because they are are breaking the law you know a phrase that a lot of people have been uh passing around um in in light of this tragedy is good trouble Mm -hmm. you know he and i can i can probably pull up the quote here Okay, so the quote from John Lewis is, I want to see young people in America feel the spirit of the 1960s and find a way to get in the way, to find a way to get in trouble. Good trouble, but necessary trouble. And, I mean, goodness, 
as I spoke before to, you know, John Lewis um, affirming the importance of music, you know, when I read that quote, I just feel so affirmed. I, you know, I can't compare myself to, you know, the Freedom Riders or those right. sitting at those. I, I can I can never compare myself to that. But, Scott, I, I stay in some trouble with somebody I feel like. Mm-hmm. And, and, when, when, and when I see this quote, you know, John Lewis talking about getting in the way, getting in, the, in that so-called good trouble, I, I feel like I'm, I'm doing just that. I mean, are we not? <laughs> you are. Yeah. Oh, you said I am. Okay. No, I'm affirming. You know, you you asked if yeah. if you weren't doing it. And yeah, you are. Yeah. Um, I mean, and as I said before, we could really talk about him for for a long, long time. But um, I hope everyone will, you know, go back and learn something that you didn't know about the late John Lewis. You know, read some of his quotes. Um, you know, he was he was there. Um, on that stage for the famous I Have a Dream speech, you know, John Lewis did the work um, and we lost him, but we can't uh, forget him. We have to make sure that his, his legacy stays alive. All right, Scott. So um, what I was really waiting to hear your take on was Django. Django. So, so, so last time we mine. last time we said, OK, so, you, so by the time we record again, you'll have watched Django for the first time. Give us your thoughts. First off, you can't be watching that movie with all of your windows open and your front door open like I did, because I had people walking by <laughs> here and here and <laughs> certain words <laughs> yeah so you know you, sh- you should keep your volume at a respectful level i think on that if you can. <laughs> why does he like that word so much tarantino does like that n-word doesn't he but i don't get it but but as uh we were talking about earlier i think the violence of that word in that context is something that should be seen in a movie like Django, just making sure that we're never painting the the happy slave narrative. You know, on the last opus, um, we uh, we began with that uh, quote from Doctor. What, what, no, with that quote from Doctor Schultz talking about King Schultz, yeah, uh, talking about you know using um, you know this slavery malarkey to my to my benefit. I mean, what, what do you think about that moment? And then you know, spoiler alert: if you haven't seen Django, by the time Doctor Schultz you know is shot by Leonardo DiCaprio. Character. I mean, do you think there's an arc there, or do you think it's the same Dr. Schultz who just, you know, used his space to um, to help uh, Django, to help Jamie Foxx? Or I mean, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts? That's a good question. I wasn't thinking of it from that aspect because, as you know, I only watched like two thirds of it and then went back the next yeah. night. And you said, "Yeah, something happened," because I was dubious yeah. about Schultz's character. And and you said, "Yeah, something happens that makes you question the motives." And I'm thinking, God, they, he's gonna die or do something stupid. Ain't no good white people. And you know, I'm looking. <laughs> That's what you were expecting. <laughs> no, I'm looking for any straw to hang on to. I'm yeah. looking for any thread to feel good about. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like King Schultz was the one. And when he finally shot Condi, is it Candy or Condi? I think it was Candy because it's Candyland, right? Right. But I, I'd heard them say Condi before, so I was sure. Maybe they were trying to be French. Maybe. You know? But he, 
Condi had a chance. He had a chance. He could have let him walk. But no, he had to get, you know, uh, self-righteous. It's that stubborn whiteness. That's right. what that was. And so he got what he had coming, if you mm. ask me. Now, um, of, of course, on the musical side of things, what a phenomenal soundtrack. Well, what were some of the uh, standout musical moments for you from that movie? Well, I think we both agree that when Jim Croce came in uh, on Moving Down the Highway, that was a moment. Uh, not Moving Down the Highway. Um, I've got a name. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. And it, was re- it really worked for me the way that it lined up with him putting his brand new saddle on with his D emblazed on it. You know, it was... That was a great moment. Like the pine trees lining the winding road. I've got a name. I've got a name. Like a singing bird in the croaking toad. I've got a name. I've got a name. And I carry it with me like my daddy did. But I'm living the dream. That he kept here Rolling me down the highway Rolling me down the highway Moving ahead so life won't pass me by How would you categorize, I mean, is that country, What? what is that folk, Americana? Singer-songwriter. Singer-songwriter. Yeah, I had never heard of Jim Croce before. Um, I saw Django years ago, and that, that song touched me right to the core, you know. Yeah. And the, the poetic, I mean, this this is not going to be the breakdown of that song, but, you know, the poetic nature of, you know, um, like the like the pine trees lining the winding road, you know, as the song goes, you know, I got a name. Wow, it, it's it it it's it's tender. They did it, some tender. traveling. They they saw some miles together. Yeah. Um, now you also spoke to uh, the Verdi on uh, in in Django, right? Mm-hmm. What what you think of? Uh, I don't know because you know as you've laid out something that I didn't always quite think about when it came to that movie, the um, the story of you know Brunhilde and. And, Siegfried. Um, and and Siegfried, and then we have you know this Verdi, um, very angry. You know, right. Tarantino did the work because let's face it, it's Carl Orff and O Fortuna. Whenever you need that sort of element, that sort of um, hair raising choral work, right? Yeah. And the fact that he didn't default to that number one, that was. That was great, but then he—I he, I don't know—that was kind of a, a choral music deep track, wasn't it? I mean, and <laughs> and, and we, we talk about the canon all the time, but you know that Diasire by Verdi is one that I think should definitely stay. Now, of course, I would be remiss if I did not bring up a hundred black coffins, Rick Ross. I mean, yeah, I wasn't familiar with that one. Say more. I mean, it's 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 not. I I, I don't remember the song before that movie, but to me, it's it just speaks to you know um, a very diverse um, soundtrack that included um, rap, and on top of that. Um, you know, kind of spoke to that anger of you know revenge. You know what 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 Django was was looking for, and 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 is that revenge okay? Is is that revenge sort of 
you know, unfounded or mm-hmm. I, obviously I don't think it's unfounded, but um, yeah, I, I really like that. Like, like, like that song as well. So go look at, look, go look up the uh, Rick Ross, hundred black coffins. Did you have anything else from uh, from 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 Django? Not from Django, no. Yeah, it's, it's a, I bought. I went ahead and bought it. I'm gonna go ahead and watch it more. Yeah. To get, you know, the like the last thing that that Tarantino did that I paid any attention to was Pulp Fiction. Probably no, no, no. The Kill Bills, probably. Yeah, yeah. Kill Kill Bill is my top three movies. Probably. Top three, not number three. <laughs> yeah, um, it, Django I would say is top five, not number five. I mean, <laughs> I, I really do appreciate um, Tarantino, even though he loves that that N word a little bit too much. But maybe that's too much to hope for to get rid of it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, so um, so today's guest for uh, Movement Three is my good friend uh, Adedeji Elgunfulu. He is. Um, he plays horn with the Pacific uh, Symphony currently, um, uh, formerly the San Antonio Symphony. Uh, we, we talk about a, a lot of things. The, the, the bulk of uh, the beginning of our conversation, you know, goes back to that question of the screen. Um, but we also um, talk about his work as a bodybuilder and, and, and how, you know, he um, when he was having a hard time in San Antonio with everything he was, you know, dealing with it, with, with that job, he started going to the gym and, and started doing and body competitions and uh so so we we sort of start our conversation here about um you know what it's like to to do that sort of work uh and we transition into you know some of the issues that he was having with the san antonio symphony and how he's taken his experiences and moving forward um in a more positive way with his new job with the pacific symphony a job that he won from behind the curtain um, mm. by the way you know something that he affirmed so um uh to to get us into um the conversation with adadeji i just wanted to make sure um i gave a shout out and um and ask for everyone listening to send warm thoughts to my brother brandon um his daughter uh, elise has been um, uh, put into uh, St. Jude for a tumor that she has. Elise is uh, 14 or 15 months old. Way too young. So, so young, you know, to, to be going through this. So um, warm thoughts to um, my brother Brandon. Uh, pre, please uh, pray for them if you are a praying person. I thought we could transition um, by playing a, a famous piece of music that uh, Beethoven wrote for his own Elise. So this one goes out to, uh, to, to my Elise. It's definitely something that I've discussed with people who were in uh, San Antonio at the time, but definitely not, it wasn't something that I was broadcasting. I think when I was posting on social media, most of my friends that were seeing it were just like, oh, wow, he's doing something different. 
Um, but it, it really was coming from a p place of kind of exasperation and pain and just kind of like this, you know, quarter life crisis <laughs> scenario sure. where I just, sure. I really didn't know what I was doing. Um, I mean, because when folks see someone, you know, with their body all together, you know, I feel like a lot of people see someone who just has their ducks in a row, you know, has <laughs> their, their situation must be okay. But, you know, but behind the facade, as they say. Yeah, well, and definitely being in that world, I did two physique competitions. Um, and first of all, I have to say that was probably the hardest thing I have ever done. Harder than taking it, an audition? Oh, oh yeah, I, I would say so. <laughs> wow. No, I, I seriously, because um, just the diet alone, um, and it's not like I had never, um, you know, dieted before or had like a strict um, calorie intake or, you know, done, um, different workout routines, but that was my first foray into, okay, you're on 1200 calories a day. 80% of your diet is protein. Um, I was in the gym, th uh, four to five hours a day, depending on what I was working on. And it j just, <laughs> it got to the point where an unsalted, unseasoned rice cake was, heaven on earth. <laughs> and, and I'm not kidding. Um, and there was just so much stuff that I couldn't, I couldn't eat broccoli, <laughs> even what? certain vegetables I wasn't able to eat because, um, uh, some vegetables called cause a uh, bloat. Um, so oh, when I, I would do my check-ins, I would have to do, um, check-ins with my coach and I had a, um, online coach. I would send him photos once one to two times a week. Um, you know, he, didn't want me looking, you know, even a little bit bloated in the pictures just so they can really see like where my body was. Um, so uh, yeah, broccoli, cauliflower, a lot, a lot of things were just off the table. Broccoli is and, not good for you. <laughs> well, it's good for you, but it's not good in the sense of if you're, you know, preparing for those, one, one of those competitions. And I just, the, it was my first time really understanding how integral, you, you know, food of a role, integral of a role food plays in your mood. Mm, oh, okay. I was, I, 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 I'll, I'll, and I joke with a lot of my friends <laughs> now, like, I don't know how you're still talking to me, especially <laughs> during that time period. Cause I, I, I would just go nuts over the smallest things. Um, and just, you know, embodying a lot of those stereotypes of, you know, bodybuilders and just being hangry and just, you know, really on edge all the time. Right, um, right. Not that I'm not, I'm the most docile person. I, I, you know, <laughs> I own that people know that about me in general, but it was kind of like on 10 during that time. And even what you're saying about the facade, um, you know, when I would be backstage at those competitions, I mean, you meet some characters. Oh, I'm sure you do. <laughs> I bet there's a lot was, of backstage shade too. Oh my God. It, <laughs> it was, I mean, it was mean girls times a hundred. I, I just, <laughs> So when anyway, it, it is definitely, I think, more difficult than doing <laughs> than doing auditions, and I, I I'm amazed now because I still work out, I still try and keep some semblance of fitness going in my routine, my daily routine, um, but I I definitely can't push the same amount of weight that I was doing then. But it, sure. I, it just I and I look back and I'm just like, how was I doing that? Um, but I was just kind of so, like I said, so exasperated with my situation. Um, that's, that's how it manifested. 
Well, before we um, sort of get into uh, your story and, and some of the things that we're here to uh, talk about on today, um, I wanted to uh, sort of um, tie in the body competitions with the um, conversation of um, auditions, uh, music auditions, orchestra auditions, and the screen and all that sort of thing. So um, I, I'm wondering what sort of big uh, similarities or maybe big differences uh, you've experienced between going on stage where being seen, what the judge sees is everything versus the idea of going on a stage where um, allegedly what they see doesn't matter at all. You know, what is it like living in both of those worlds? That's a really interesting question. And, you know, I never have thought about that. Um, I will say the similarity between the two, especially when you're taking an audition and someone like me, you know, I'm not this you know, wunderkind of the horn, I've really had to work very, very hard to mm-hmm. get to where I've gotten in my career. Um, so with auditions, um, I studied with Jennifer Montone. Uh, she's principal horn of the Philadelphia Orchestra, um, did my undergrad at uh, uh, Curtis Institute. Um, and that's where we, um, where I studied with her. And she has like a very kind of persnickety, fastidious approach to taking auditions where there's kind of like, and a lot of people have, um, a, a lot of teachers ha- have this kind of plan, but it's kind of a thing where it's at least eight weeks out. You're starting your audition preparation. You're going through the list of the excerpts, um, you know, marking them one, two, three, one meaning, okay, I've got this in the bag or I'm most comfortable with this excerpt. Three meaning, you're in danger, girl. Like you need to spend a lot of time (laughs) (laughs) working on this. Um, And two is, you know, in the middle and throughout the audition preparation process that some of those numbers might change. Your ones might go to threes, your threes might go to ones, et cetera. Um, Recording yourself, recording yourself, um, doing mock auditions for your friends. And, you know, she has a very outlined detailed, um, approach and method to um how to structure um your time leading up into leading up to the audition so that you're um you know being as efficient and you're building that preparedness as much as possible with and i guess the similarity with um you know the bodybuilding or the physique competitions that i did is that you know it was a similar thing where you don't just look you know, physically in your prime in a span of a month, you know, the first competition that I did, it was a 12 week um, process. And it it was just basically, you know, trying to build mass while at the same time, you know, cutting down um, your, your fat reserves as much as possible, Mm -hmm. which is a very hard balance. Um, And I mentioned those check-ins earlier where my coach would look at me and say, okay, we're going to tweak our workout this way. We're going to tweak your macros or macronutrients this way, the proportion of, you know, fat to carbs to protein. Um, So that, that would change as the, um, as the uh, competition got closer, I guess, and a little, I guess that's a, a similarity with, you know, the number system that I was talking about, because things mm-hmm. where I thought, oh, I got this. And my coach would look at me and be like, no, you don't. <laughs> we're we're going to change that that one, two or three. Um, that was definitely, um, I would definitely say that that is a similarity. And just speaking about the component of the appearance factor, 
I mean, it, it's a strictly, you know, visual experience. And I also have to say, it's so strange <laughs> going to bodybuilding competitions and having people cheering at you or for you when you're just on stage striking poses. <laughs> and it's not like I'd never seen that before. I've seen, you know, you know, videos of Arnold Schwarzenegger at his competitions sure. and and but also the kinds of characters that come to watch <laughs> bodybuilding competitions. Like there are there are bodybuilding groupies that go from competition to competition. Yeah. Just, you know, um, acting like they're at a Beatles concert over people all oiled up <laughs> and like tanned on stage. Um, so I guess that's the big difference is one field is strictly visual and the other field field is supposed to be just, or on its face, yeah, um, yeah. especially with the advent of the screen supposed to be about your um, musical and technical proficiency. Um, it's, on so the it's so interesting that you talk about, you know, going on stage and, you know, folks are uh, screaming for you for, for striking a pose, you know, that, that sort of, <laughs> uh, that sort of reinforcement coming from the audience. Uh, when I won my um, audition with the Knoxville Symphony, so uh, that screen comes down on the final round. Um, for and the reason is, you know, uh, playing with the section so they can, uh, so they can see, you know, and we'll talk about that word later, so they can see how you'll uh, play with the section. But anyway, you know, when I come out on stage for the finals, I will never forget. Uh, I looked out um, in into the um, into the hall to, to see the uh, the panel, and Ebony Thompson, our good friend Ebony, uh, shout out to Ebony. Yeah, the, yeah. She was playing with the Knoxville Symphony at that point, and when I walked out on stage we like locked eyes and she grinned <laughs> and, and sort of nodded her head. And for me, that was just sort of that reinforcement. I meant, I was like, yeah, see, I'm a, we're, we're black, we're in the room and I'm going to show them, you know, and I ended up with the audition. <laughs> maybe, maybe the results would have been the same if the uh, curtain were down, but, but maybe it wouldn't be, you know, the conversation that followed that, especially with the principal that I played with at that time was that, um, that round is really what put me um, head and shoulders above everyone else. You know, the, the synergy I was able to, to create in that moment. And as we're talking yeah. about these days, diversifying um, orchestras and maybe even taking that screen down, I, I'm wondering what your opinions are uh, along those lines. You know, the, the screen coming down in a way benefited me, you know, and that's what many people allege, but that, that's not, uh, it doesn't seem to be the popular opinion among musicians, at least in my circles yeah i will say i have two reasons for personally why i am for the screen staying up the entire time mm -hmm. um i'll start with you know one situation i had when i was in san antonio and i'll give some backstory sure when i joined the orchestra i joined the orchestra as a fourth utility horn um so i mostly played fourth 80 percent of the time i played fourth horn um, but I played some third, um, I played some second horn, um, and I, on a couple of occasions, I played assistant. Um, so okay. I, it was really all over the place in terms of um, the expectations of that job. So you were hired um, on for this sort of, this rotating, this very dynamic position in the horn section. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I looked at it as a challenge and I did enjoy it uh, to a certain degree. Um, but it, it, that's not very common in a lot of other orchestras. Um, so anyway, uh, I joined the orchestra as fourth utility horn. And I got tenure in 
believe it was November of 2015. And then a couple of weeks after that, there was an emergency orchestra meeting that was called by management and the orchestra committee. And the orchestra got in front, or the CEO and the chair of the board got in front of the membership of the orchestra and told us, if you, and I'm summarizing, but if you guys do not take this 10% pay cut, the orchestra doesn't have enough money to finish past January. <laughs> okay. So that was kind of like a crisis moment for me because I, I, you know, and I didn't go in thinking or not knowing some of the financial history of the orchestra. There've been a lot of issues financially with that orchestra over decades. It's been mm -hmm. a pattern. It's not a one-off thing. And I was just kind of like, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to curse, but I was just like, <laughs> F this. Yeah. You know, I've spent all my, you know, career working for this. Um, and this, this is a situation. And also, you know, um, <laughs> a topic of things you don't learn in school. We, we spend so much time talking about winning the job. That's going to be the thing that you, from which you get validation and, you know, your life, everything's going to fall in a row. And mm -hmm. you don't, you're not taught to ask when you win the job, hey, what are the finances like? What is the work culture like? You know, is there an HR department? How right. does that work? You're not taught to ask, ask any of that stuff. So there, there, was, there was a huge learning curve. And honestly, there still is a learning curve because, you know, I'm in a different professional situation now. Um, but I, I was just like, no, screw this. I'm, I need to get out of here. Um, and not that I thought that San Antonio, I, I wanted San Antonio to be my destination job, but I, it just really lit a fire under me. So, um, so it just so happened that the first audition that I took, uh, or the first audition that was available um, for the new year was for the San Antonio Symphony. Um, in in light of this pay cut. Yes. Which that's a, that's a whole other conversation about orchestras being in that situation and still holding auditions. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, I feel like that's another show because sure. I had a lot of, <laughs> you know, issues that I took with that over my, the course of my time there. Um, but I saw that and I was like, look, I, 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 and I really genuinely mean this. I want to say this before I get into the rest of the story because I got really close to that job and didn't take it well when I didn't get it. Mm. But I did not want that job. I was looking to get out. But the reason I decided that I should take that audition, I was like, it's right down the street. It's, you know, third horn repertoire that really wasn't as much within my wheelhouse. So it, I thought it would be a good experience just preparing repertoire that I hadn't seen in a while. So it was an audition just, for third horn in the San Antonio Symphony. Third, gotcha. third associate horn. Yeah. And I, I just thought it would be a good way to get my feet wet. So if I didn't do well, whatever, like it, it's, right. it's a job I didn't want anyway, but you know, it, I, I wanted to be able to have some kind of like no pressure audition experience before I started taking all the other auditions mm -hmm. that were happening that year. So I started from prelims, like I got to the final two of that audition and the screen came down and I was like, oh, this is an advantage for me because these people are going to see me come out and they're going to be like, Oh, that's Adedeji. We work with him. Um, we love him. Cause you know, I, up until that point, I, I thought 
um, or just had it in my head that people really liked what I had to offer. And me not mm-hmm. winning the audition didn't mean that they were like, oh, F you, like you sound like garbage. But, you know, just back to the screen, I really thought that that was going to help me. Um, and it didn't. And that, and when I, I, when I tell you I was sitting in that waiting room after the final round and I'm like <laughs> with confident. my chest out, <laughs> I was confident. I was confident. And when I didn't win that audition, I did not take that well. Mm. And that's something, it was a big lesson for me. And when I say I didn't take that well, I will own this. I was a jerk for a long time. You grabbed your pocketbook and stormed out of the room. That's what you're saying. (laughs) Yeah. Well, no, um, not at that time. But after the audition, I was really frosty towards my colleagues, Mm. giving people the cold shoulder. Um, I I did not want to deal with any of them. I, I just took it as... I just took it as a personal affront. Like y'all don't have my, and I just didn't realize at the time that's not how that worked. Um, And you hear stories of the screen coming down and that benefiting people who know people in the section. And I I just had that in my head. So, you know, that is, that's definitely one of the things I look back on and I'm just like, I, I did not handle that well. You know, in a situation like that, I would imagine that, um, you know, the response would be, well, Adedeji, you know, you're here and we really love you on fourth horn. And if, uh, you know, we gave you this third horn position, that means we'd have to have a whole new audition for fourth horn. And it's just easier for us to, you know, what what was that idea not uh, presented to you? I I would imagine it would be. Oh, it wasn't. Okay. No, definitely not. That there was just, and uh, to the guy's credit, um, Marcus Osterlin, shout out to him. I mean, he's second horn of the national symphony. Um, now, um, I mean, he won San Antonio and won that job with national and we were in the finals for that job too. So it was like (laughs) deja vu, but I learned so much playing next to that kid. I mean, he was like 21 when he won that job with San Antonio. He was still at Rice. He was like, finishing his degree, driving back and forth to play concerts. Um, I, I, it was a very humbling experience for me. Um, so, I mean, he totally deserved that job. I am not taking that away from him. Like when he got there, I was like, Oh, okay. You know, <laughs> this is the situation, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but why? No. So that wasn't presented to me, but why I use that as one example of why I'm such a proponent of the screen staying up for the entire time is if the screen was up, I really, not that I had any reason to act the way I did after that audition. I definitely did not. It wasn't justified. But the screen being up the whole time, it, it just, it would have taken away all those questions for me, I think. Or I just, I would, it's easy, hindsight is twenty twenty. It's easy to talk about this hypothetical situation right, or easier. Right. But I just really think it just takes so much of that those dynamics away when the screen is up i'm sure this kid still would have won um and that would have been it and i i just but because it came down and because i you know had all these things in my head and i think some of them you know any lay person would understand why you the screen coming down in that situation you would you might be led to believe that would be an advantage but definitely wasn't when I won my current job with the Pacific Symphony, I was hired from behind the screen. And it was one, it was, when I tell you what that did for my confidence, um, what a game changer that was for me, because it really felt like the first time where it was like, okay, this is mine. No one can take this away from me. No one, you know, no basic person can make the 
allegation that, oh, you were the diversity hire or they were trying to, you know, bring more color on. Like, it was like, this is mine. I earned this. Mm, you know, I earned yeah. this. Yeah. Um, and because, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm 33 years old. The experience that I've had is definitely not the experience that my mom had or her parents had, her parents, their parents before them had, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have definitely been in situations where that has come up or that it, it's been intimated or, you know, that you're here because you're black. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, I have my stories about that. So it, it was, I was 31 years old when I won that job and it was, it it did so much for my confidence. And I I really felt like, okay, um, I I deserve to be here. And it, it had really been a long time since I felt that way. But what do you say to the people um, who would say that when that screen comes down or when more orchestras um, foreground diversity, we'll have more diverse orchestras? I mean, do you, do you not trust orchestras to, to, to foreground diversity if the screen no, comes down? I don't. And what, and what I, don't. I, wonder, I wonder what that's rooted in, that, that distrust. I just, because, you know, the distrust, this trust is rooted in how a lot of these orchestras are presenting themselves of bastions of, you know, diversity and progressive thinking. Mm-hmm. And but you look at how they program, uh, you look at how, you know, conversations that go on in boardrooms, some of them, some sure, of them, sure. you know, are doing this work. And Hashtag not all about. orchestras. <laughs> yeah, I, that's... <laughs> You know, my experience is kind of clouded because my last orchestra, it that was that didn't seem to really be a priority based on you know some of the interactions that I had with people who were in charge of things. Right. Um, it. I just. I. I don't. So that's where my um, lack of trust comes from because it the way they're presenting. But speaking of you know behind the facade, the way that orchestras, especially right now with the current social climate, the way that mm-hmm. they're presenting themselves, there's just not really the history to back that up. And I just really feel, and I know people like to use the Met <laughs> as the model of, you look at how many Damari McGill, Anthony McGill, Weston Sprott, Billy Hunter, you know, it that, that that's four people that I, I'm rattling off, but I, you'd be hard pressed to find any other orchestra where there are that many like full-time, like large orchestra where there are yeah. that many black musicians. I, I can't, I honestly can't think of an example and they're all, I mean, you can't, you can't knock that process. Like the Met is one of the greatest orchestras on earth. I, that That's my personal opinion. So that that's just what, why I really fully believe the screen needs to stay up. And, you know, I know you were mentioning that New York times article. I, I just, I, I I'll admit I only read half of it before I was just like <laughs> I can't you got I can't I, I was like I can't deal with this I can't I can't deal this I, this just it was clearly written and maybe this guy knows more about the system uh, than he was letting on but it was clearly for me it was like this just sounds like a reviewer who has a very peripheral knowledge of how auditions work. Right, right. Coming in with his, you know, brainchild of how to fix. Uh, I got it, fixed it, and it was just like, no, sit down, sir. Like, <laughs> please stop. Well, well, well you mentioned um, our um, our black colleagues in uh, <laughs> in the Met, and you know, 
Adedeji, if I'm going to be honest, you know, I just can't help but to also point to um, the tools that they had that led them there, you know, the schools that they were able to go to. And, you know, you mentioned yourself that you um, are a graduate of the Curtis Institute, you know, the, this yeah. bastion of, of, of education for orchestral musicians. I mean, what part does that play um, in, in the conversation? Maybe even um, uh, your story in particular, you know, having access to, to the greatest things and yet still be being a part of a perceived marginalized um, community or, or, or having to be a diversity hire, you know, despite the fact that, you know, you have the same foundation as, as all these white folks. Oh, uh, that's a lot. Um, and it's hard to answer that question without knowing the opportunities that some, but the people that we just discussed were afforded before they got into the Curtis. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We should lay that out. I I don't know their stories or. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Because when I was at Curtis, I mean, there were definitely some people who did not, you know, and I'm putting some quotes come from means. Sure. You know, they, you know, were able, they came from cities that had a lot of resources where they could get scholarships to attend programs where they could, um, there was like access for them. Um, and it, it's not, even though a lot of people in classical music, especially if you're, you know, um, you know, a string player, some of those, some of the people I went to Curtis with had orchestras that are, or had, um, instruments rather that are more expensive than any house that I will ever live in, Sure, <laughs> you know? Sure. sure. So, and how they were able to get those instruments. I mean, you have to have, you know, some coin to be able to afford right. an instrument like right. that. Um, unless you're getting it out on loan. How have your um, experiences uh, informed the way that, um, you know, you're, you're traversing the, the, the field now, you know, especially considering that uh, you just got tenure uh, in a new orchestra, the Pacific Symphony. How does this, how, how do these conversations apply? You know, what, what, what do you think is, is our part in, um, you know, uh, changing things, you know? That's an interesting or, or question. Or is it to us, I guess I should ask that i i don't know if i can answer that adequately enough i i know that i had my certain set sets of experiences in san antonio that led me to really understand it doesn't matter how messed up things if you experience something um that's you know racially insensitive or um, where you, you feel like you're being attacked or people aren't having your back or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. It, that stuff, especially when you're, when you're under tenure review, you really have to smile all the time. You have to present as, and I, I feel like a black, as a black man, like I have to present myself as non-threatening as I possibly, as non-threatening of a way as I possibly can. Especially a black and, man with muscles, you know, to pull it around full circle. <laughs> okay, Garrett, you know, <laughs> I have feelings and thoughts, I'm not just, I'm just not, I'm not just me. Anyway, um, <laughs> but I, you know, I do have a reputation of sometimes being a hothead, you know, and that's something that I own and that's something that I've definitely had to work on, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, especially, you know, when things got really bad. You know, we all, you know, I, I'm not 
trying to present myself as just this perfect being that, you know, people were just assaulting me and woe is me. Like I definitely <laughs> yeah, yeah. played my part in how some of those things went down. One of your, um, well, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll uh, describe her as one of your neighbors down in Southern California, a member of the Triloquy family, Stephanie Matthews. Shout out to her. <laughs> she, um, she once asked me a really interesting question. She said, um, imagine that you were your teacher. What would you tell yourself today? And I, and I kind of want to pose that question to you. You know, as we as we begin to uh, wrap up here, you know, we we've talked about you know uh, what they don't teach you in school. You know, the implications of of race. You know, in, in the field, um, if you were teaching that uh, Adedeji, um in in the in the DC uh, youth program, you know, or or whatever, what would you tell him today about the path that uh, lays before him? <laughs> uh, no, that, that's an interesting question. I, I think not getting validation or seeking validation so much from outside sources. Um, and I think that was something that I spent a lot of time um, just w wanting um, validation from like our heroes in the field. I think that took away from me actually finding where my voice was wow. and like actually developing my own sense of self or just like as a horn player. Um, I was so um, hung up on trying to imitate other people. And th there is some kind that, that does play a role yeah. in the things that you're doing. Um, but it, it, it was too much of a role for me. So I, I, that's what I would say to him, just like really have a better understanding of what you want to contribute, not how much you want to imitate. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, we kind of started uh, by talking about, you know, your time in the gym and everything, you know, my, my, my COVID body is um, in full force, unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> you know, spending all these days indoors um, for, uh, for, for me and for other folks who are, you know, whenever we get to it, when we, when we, when we start to beat the pavement, you know, get back into the gym or whatever, what's a piece of uh, classical, so-called classical music that uh, you would suggest bringing in um, with us? What, what's going to just push us over the edge to, to, to help us get that final rep in? <laughs> oh, Garrett. <laughs> no, 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 no. When I'm at the gym, I, and well, and this is just me outside of work. Cause you know, I'm at the point where this is a job for me. So if sure, I'm sure. listening to anything. It's the most sugary, saccharine, vapid music that you can ever think of. Not to say that there isn't classical music that it, you know, fits that, um, that designation, but I don't, I do not listen to classical music. So I, my advice is to just find, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the music that would speak to you if you were at the club like that, oh. that that would that is what would get me if you know if we ever are in a situation where we're able to you know be in a gym again like yeah so I, i'm not going to sit here and suggest some Mahler and you, know, <laughs> you need something where the beat is just it's the same there's no variation there's no dynamics it's just being your ratchet self that that <laughs> being your ratchet self I, I will definitely take that advice up <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Deji, it's, it's really been great to talk with you thanks so much for sitting with me yeah no i appreciate it thanks for having me
Let's get ratchet. Shout out to Megan the Stallion. You know, uh, Adedeji suggested, you know, listen to your most ratchet music while you're trying to work out. So there it is <laughs> there's some of mine anyway i searched the word ratchet in my um in, in my uh, music library and that's one of the ones that came out so yeah continue love to making the stallion and get well soon she was recently in some drama for those of you who keep up with hip-hop news what is ratchet <laughs> okay <laughs> i define ratchet as kind of like unapologetically raw like you know uh, you know, the idea of dancing like no one's looking, but um. in the middle of a crowd. But and that's not necessarily ratchet. I don't know. It's it's hard for me to d- define that one. If, if you're listening and you, and you can help me explain ratchet to uh, Scott, send us a note so we can <laughs> see, because I would be listening to all that 90s grunge, Allison Chains. Sure, sure. Soundgarden. Sure. And all, all that stuff that was on. 90s radio at the time that just made you feel hopeless and like uh, everything was a struggle there's a uh, there's a clarinet concerto um written in the style of uh, alice in chains is that, that right well we'll talk All about right. it sometime cool, uh, cool. It's, a, it's a clarinet concerto called x like the letter x well we'll talk about that sometime but cool. um for right now it is time for the triloquy so um you got something you need to say this week i'm holding space for you man okay listen you, for the record, you're allowed to come in here with a triloquy. You know I that, have, right? I have. Okay, okay, just making sure you know. But every time that we talk about, every time we get the the outline going, it just seems like you've got too much to say. So I'm like, <laughs> all right, I'll, okay, I'll just sit back here and listen. This is, this isn't going to be an extra long triloquy, but um, a few people asked me to address the um, Nick Cannon situation. So in a nutshell. Um, Nick Cannon, you know, shout out to Drumline. If you saw that movie, you know, um, has had a long career um, in black media, uh, most famously these days hosting a show called uh, Wild and Out, like a, a sketch comedy hip hop show. Uh, he went on um, one of his other platforms and said some things that people considered anti-Semitic. And um, he's gone from uh, Viacom, you know, Wild and Out is, you know, not on the air, at least as far as I know now. And, you know, fresh off of that uh, conversation about cancel culture that we were having uh, last time, Scott, yeah. and, and with, um, you know, folks having that conversation, you know, across social media um, and across different fields, um, a lot of people are, you know, sort of revisiting that question. Well, you know, what did he say? Um, did what Was this all justified? Um, I'm not here to... You know, and especially after the Louis Farrakhan opus, I'm not here to get my hands dirty at all. Um, but what I do think is interesting about this conversation, Scott, is the um, content creators, the folks who really drive what um, a, an organization um, is doing and what is successful. And um, when when money comes along, the risk of losing money, how all of that will quickly just um, go out the window. Mm-hmm. Um, let's compare this to uh, the Washington Redskins, how this is a change that they could have always made. But when advertisers and all those folks are, are walking out of the room, right. you know, uh, there's there's an issue. So uh, concerning um, this Nick Cannon thing, you know, I, I, I need to do some learning myself. Uh, Joshua Wallerstein, you know, uh, a former uh, a Triloquy guest from season one, um, he he's offered to have a conversation with me off the record. Um, so I'm going to sit um, and do some learning. Um, where from where I sit right now, um, and and I really hope that folks get you know to take it take it however you take it. 
I feel like sometimes we are afraid to have the conversation of the levels of uh, white supremacy and black oppression as that applies to different white and white presenting communities, mm. Jewish communities included. Um, Jewish people um, have uh, community centers and, and insulated um, fiscal and, and social communities. Many, uh, you know, much like um, there are Chinatowns in many major um, cities across the country. Here in the Twin Cities, uh, Hmong populations and mm-hmm. Hmong communities are very tight knit and, and self sufficient. You know, we've talked about before on this podcast how uh, the black dollar does not stay in black communities for very long. Um, as compared to um, other uh, cultural communities, um, the conversations are not easy. I think Nick Cannon um, sort of, I don't know, just didn't didn't approach it um, the right way, especially uh, these days when everyone is is looking for 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 some for something, you know, some something to call out, something to critique. So. You know, my my thing is, um, and and I kind of you know touched on this when we were talking about the the curtain um, as well earlier uh, in this opus. Black people, I think we just have to stop being afraid to um, affirm ourselves, to put ourselves first, and to look for our own um, liberation. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Do you think there's something wrong with that? You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. All right, wonderful. Well, um, in closing here again, thank you everyone for listening. Um, I'm trying to say uh, Brianna Taylor's name as often as I can, but um, I think it's also important at this point to name the folks who killed her. So justice for Brianna Taylor, arrest Brett Hankinson, John Manningly, and Miles Crossgrove. See you next time.